Now, um, grab your Bibles, and I hope you'll keep them close to you this morning. Um, we return to our, our study of the parables. We're in Luke chapter 15 this morning. You follow um, as I read from this portion of, of a book that's inerrant, it's infallible, it's inspired. Um, I'm going to read the first 10 verses of Luke chapter 15. Here we go. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or that woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, that word endures forever. There is probably no chapter in the entire Bible that has done greater good for the souls of men than has Luke 15. That's a quote. That's a quote from one of my heroes, a man by the name of J.C. Ryle, who is a bishop, an Anglican bishop. But you know, he's probably right. Uh, one of the reasons that Luke 15 has been so dear to God's people is because it describes lost things, a lost sheep, a lost coin. In fact, Luke 15 has been called the lost and found department of the, of the New Testament. Um, but I, I think you would also agree with me that if you remember back before you became a Christian, one of the words that probably describes us the best is the word lost, <laughs> just lost. Um, the whole Bible describes us that way, not just these three parables. And, and if you'll notice, by the way, verse 3 says, so he told them this parable. There, there are some people who would say that this is not three parables, it's just one parable with three different movements. Well, I, I don't know how you're going to... Uh, divide them all up. But, but I can say this. These three parables are unique to the Gospel of Luke. They're not found in Matthew, Mark, or John. And Luke, of course, was a Gentile. And the reason that I point that out is because it, 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 it seems that at this juncture in human history, um, Gentiles were under no illusion about their lostness. They were far more receptive to that idea than were Jews. In our day... <laughs> Neither Jews nor Gentiles are open to the idea or receptive to the idea that they are lost. 
Now, guys, um, we're going to look just at the first two of these three parables. Uh, we'll save that last one for, um, uh, for a lengthier treatment at the end of the series. Uh, the the, the uh, parable of the prodigal son uh, we'll save it as the last parable that we look at in this series on, on the parables. But um, these two seemed so similar, that is... Uh, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. It seemed to me that they they shouldn't be separated, and so we're gonna we're gonna look at them this morning together. Now, gang, um, the first thing that I, that I want you to see, and uh, because it really is, it really does help you understand the parables. You you you, you got to see that all three of these parables grow out of a slur, an attack. On the character of Jesus Christ. You see it in verse 2, where it says, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, gang, it, it is hard for us in the 21st century to, um, to relate to the, to the intensity of that particular attack. Um, if I were to say it, uh, if I were to paraphrase it, somewhat nicely, it would go something like this. You know that uh, birds of a feather, they flock together. (laughs) But if I were to say it um, in a way that was probably more true to the way that they said it, it would sound like this. You know, you know he eats with sinners, don't you? And, and if he eats with them, there's no telling what else he does with those people. There is a contempt in this attack. A contempt that is brought on, it is brought on guys by, um, by a whole religious system that is out of whack. Um, it, it's brought on by a system as in Judaism, for Judaism, holiness consisted of, of keeping your distance from anything that was defined as sin. Because for them, sin was something that was on the outside. It was not, a, it was not an inside problem. It was an outside problem. You know, if you hang around people like that, uh, that filth, that, 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 that might get on you. You know, it's contagious. And, uh, and we good people, well, we, we don't want to defile ourselves like he's doing. Why? Why, that's vile what he's doing. You know, uh, guys, they, they attack him um, because obviously they don't know who he is. But, but more significantly than that, they attack him because they have a view of themselves. They attack him because they, they think the, the way to get right with God is um, something that's merely external. Their, their religious system is somewhat like some of yours. With a false view of themselves. And a, and a wacky understanding about how it is that a man gets right with God. Guys, um, 
they don't know who he is. They don't know that he's the physician for the soul and he alone has a cure for their lost condition. But the thing that creates contempt in them is that they have this view of themselves that, um, that they don't know that they're sick. They don't think they're lost. And, and when you don't think you're lost, you don't have much interest in being found. Or if you don't know you're sick, then this person that comes and offers you a cure, why, that's downright offensive. Because I'm not sick. I, I, I don't need anything that you're offering. And you see, that's what I'm saying, guys. This, this, this slur, this attack upon Jesus Christ is spawned because people have a faulty notion of, of their own condition. And they have a wacky view of how you can get right with God. Gang, in this whole process of God saving people, do you know where he starts? He starts by convincing people that they're lost. So, to an audience that is not quite convinced that they are lost, he tells three parables. He tells these three parables to the orthodox crowd, to the religious crowd, to those, those self-satisfied people, um, that, 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 those, those people that think, um, me and God, why... While we're just fine, thank you. Um, he, he's telling these three people, these three parables to people who have never tasted anything like mercy, because they've always been too good to need any mercy. Now, there's a couple of things about the parables that stand out that I want you to see, and the first thing that I want you to see about these two parables is the beauty of the owner. Gang, um, there are two owners in these two parables. There's a shepherd and there's a sheep. But both of these owners, um, they own things that are lost. And and before you see the beauty of the owner, you've got to see, number one, um, what it is that's lost and why. The first thing that is mentioned that is lost is a sheep. Now, gang, you do realize, don't you, that when, when, when the Bible calls us a sheep, He's paying us no compliment. Um, a sheep gets lost via sheer stupidity. Um, but, but, but he doesn't think he's stupid. He just thinks he's, he's independent. He's a, he's a free thinker. Um, he, he, he has taken a deaf ear to the voice of the shepherd because he doesn't need any shepherd telling him what he needs to do and what he ought not to do. Left to himself, that sheep is going to die. But he's not so much convinced of that. He's not convinced that he's in any danger at all. Sheep don't know the way back and they don't need to know the way back because they're not in their minds lost. I'm not interested in being found. Sheep are the, are the most helpless of all the members of the animal kingdom. But they don't care to be found. 
to wander for a sheep is sheer folly. If help doesn't arrive for that sheep, he will perish. But he is oblivious to all of that. Why, in his mind, he's absolutely fine. You see, you see this, me, I'm fine. And then a coin, of course, it gets lost through carelessness, through neglect, but the coin doesn't know it's lost either. You know, gang, one of the, one of the first things that you see about these parables is that you learn something about sin. Sin has a centrifugal tendency to it. It spins us out. It drives us away. It separates us from the owner. That's what sin does. It kind of spins you out. And so the owner, knowing all this about what is lost, launches a search. The owner so values what is lost and, and, and you can see, you can see how he values the lost in a couple of ways. First of all, in the intensity of the, of the search. He goes to extremes to find these two lost things. The, 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 the woman could not have done more than she did to find that lost coin. And the shepherd, the shepherd endures whatever he has to endure so that and until he finds that sheep and restores that lost sheep. No effort was too great. You know, guys, when I was thinking about that, just in my preparation of this for Sunday morning, it struck me about my own life. That is, to save someone as wicked as Jimmy Young was, and is, Jesus is going to have to leave heaven. <laughs> and he does. Because he values that which is lost. In neither case of either of these parables is the lost object seeking the owner. Do you get that? Do you see that? The lost object's not seeking the owner. The only seeker here is not that which is lost. It's the owner that's the only seeker. The sheep isn't looking for the shepherd, and the coin certainly isn't looking for the woman. The owner does all the seeking. Just like Paul says, there is none that seeketh after God. Not one, none of us. And the other way that you see the value that the owner places on the lost object is in, the, in his expressions of joy once it's found. He calls his neighbors and his friends and says, come on over and celebrate at my house because that thing that was lost is now found. The Pharisees, and they're still murmuring and grumbling, but heaven, no, heaven's rejoicing. Though lost, the object remained valuable to the owner. You know, my friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you probably don't recognize that you're lost. But I want you to hear at least this. The Christian gospel says that you are. And the owner, the owner still values that which is lost. Still values you. The, the emphasis in these parables is not on the, the lost object. The emphasis of these two parables is on the eagerness 
of the owner to have them back. <laughs> the owner is more eager to find the lost than the lost are to be found. Let me tell you what else that means, guys. To us who are Christians, uh, if, if, if you're a Christian here this morning, do you know why you are? It's because a seeking, forgiving God went to extremes to restore you. Just like you see in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve, uh, it wasn't Adam and Eve that sought God. Uh, they ran from God. It was God that sought them. Now, when did that change? Well, these two parables assure us that it hasn't changed. The lost... The, the, the emphasis is not on the loss. The emphasis is on the, the extremes to which the owner went to restore the lost. Guys, if, if your eyes have been opened by grace, this owner is beautiful to us because of the extremes to which he went to restore us and because of the joy that we see in him once he restored us. One of the things that overwhelms you is how valuable the lost are to the owner. This is one beautiful owner. The other thing that stands out in the parable, at least to me, was um, you will notice that in both of these parables, the way back to the owner is repentance. He says it in verse 7. Uh, he says it in verse 10. That the only way back is repentance. There's not more than one way. There's no other way. There's only one way, and that way um, is, is repentance. So, so the point that I'm making, guys, is that there's only one path back, and that path is repentance. There's only one path that produces joy in heaven, and that's repentance. It's not moral reform that produces joy in heaven. It is repentance that produces joy in heaven. Now, guys, I have been planning to make that point all week long and even before that. But the way that I was going to make it changed yesterday. Um, you know, some of the, the, the famous preachers, <laughs> the real smart ones, they, um, they quote the Wall Street Journal and they quote the New York Times and they quote Time Magazine. I, not to be outdone, am quoting the commercial appeal. Um, now, I know you don't read this, but um, according to the paper, um, their readership is still a little bit over a quarter of a million. So there's 250,000 of us in this area that still read this thing. I happen to be one of them. And for those of you who don't, you, you don't understand, you don't know, but um, every Saturday morning they have a section called the Faith Forum or Faith in Memphis. And so they have a panel, uh, a rather large panel, uh, to which I was invited. I declined. 
a um, couple of years ago, I declined, and, and it was one of the smarter things that I did, I've done. But um, uh, the religious editor of the paper puts a question to the panel, and they're supposed to write back with a position paper, well, you know, a couple of par- brief, a uh, couple of paragraphs, on the question put to them by the religious editor. Yesterday, in view of Yom Kippur, a celebration going on in Judaism currently, in view of Yom Kippur, the religious editor put to the panel uh, the question about repentance. Now, I just told you that in our two parables this morning that the only path back was repentance. And so you, you might understand why, how, how interested I was to see that these 19 panelists were going to address the issue of repentance. After having read every word of all 19 of them, I decided, actually I felt required, to weigh in. Guys, let me say, I I don't enjoy this because um, as hard as I'm going to try, somebody is going to leave here this morning and with the impression that that Jimmy Young, (laughs) I mean, uh, uh, he thinks he knows it all. He's just such a pompous know-it-all. He's just a narrow-minded preacher. Now, guys, narrow-minded I may be, but I want you to hear me say this. I have never sought to convince you. I have never led you to believe that I was the final arbiter of the truth. I've never tried to convince you that that I'm the final say, that I'm smarter than everybody else, or that I have a corner on the truth. But, but wouldn't you agree with me that this book does? Wouldn't you think it would be wise to derive all of our definitions from here? Couldn't we try to find the definition of repentance from here? In all 19 of these responses, one verse of Scripture was mentioned by a female panelist. Maybe they were told not to drag the Bible into this. I I don't know. All I can tell you is it wasn't used. So what I want to do, according to this book, not according to Jimmy Young, but try to find out what is repentance? So I hope you got your Bibles close to you. I, I want to show you a few things and hopefully derive a definition from here. We're in Luke 15. Turn back two chapters to Luke 13. Luke 13, the opening five verses, is about two uh, current events that had happened there in Israel. A tower had, fell, had fallen on some people in Siloam. Several of them had been killed. Uh, Pilate had killed several Gentiles and mixed their blood with his pagan sacrifices. And Jesus puts to his audience this question, do you think they were worse sinners because they suffered this fate? 
And he says to them in verse 3, 13, 3, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He says the same thing in verse 5. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, Jesus is speaking here, and he says, Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So here's the first thing that I want you to know about repentance. It's pretty important. Without it, you perish. Jesus said that, ladies and gentlemen. Unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. If you are here this morning without biblical Holy Ghost author repentance, you will perish according to Jesus, not according to Jimmy Young. Now, here's the second thing that I want you to see, but it's over in the book of Acts. It's, uh, it's also written by Luke, but it's got Luke, John, Acts. It's only a couple of books over. It's in chapter 11. This is when, right after Pentecost, um, the Gentiles had, um, had, made, had come to, into the kingdom, and um, Paul is making a report to the, to, the, um, to the church back in Jerusalem. This is in Acts chapter 11. He says this in Acts 11, verse 18. Then to the Gentiles, uh, well, let me read the whole, when, when they, this is verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent, they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now again, whatever repentance is, whatever it looks like, we are told here that it is something that is granted. It is given. Repentance is a gift. That same thing is said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you'd like to see it. Uh, It's in verse 25. Um, And God may perhaps grant them repentance. Again, whatever repentance is, it is granted. Now, by the way, let let me show you one other thing that's said in this section. It's in verse 24 of 2 Timothy 2. It's said to people like me. It's in verse 24, and it says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance. So in my effort to teach this, I have no permission on the part of the scriptures to be unkind or ungentle. But what I'm pointing out to you, ladies and gentlemen, is that that text, along with Acts chapter 11, very consistent with 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7, which says, what do you have that you have not received do you have faith? Oh, good. You received it. Do you have repentance? Good. You, you received it. It's a gift. Consistent with all of that, I say to you, repentance is a gift. Ladies and gentlemen, I say to you again that if we could get just those two things down, that it's very important, without it you perish, and it's a gift. If we could get those two things, I, I, I say to you, we'd be way ahead of what you would read in here. Now, should God, let me, before I get to that, let me say just practically, I am in four situations right this minute. There are four marriages that are in shambles, um, varying degrees of betrayal on part of one of the spouses. And I am saying to the non-perpetrating offender, uh, the, the, the innocent party in, in all this, I am saying this to them. I am saying that the only hope your marriage has of being put back together is if God should grant Holy Ghost-authored repentance. And so what we should do is not so much worry about tactic, we should worry about praying 
Because you see, ladies and gentlemen, repentance is a gift. People get sorry, but that's not repentance, which you're, you're going to see in just a minute. Okay, let's just say, thirdly, that God were to see fit to grant repentance. What would it look like? Well, you know that John the Baptist says, bring forth fruits of repentance. Uh, we can learn from that that if God grants it, it's visible, it's seeable, it's quantifiable, maybe even touchable. He brings forth fruits of repentance. Um, that is also mentioned in Acts chapter 20, ver- excuse me, Acts 26, verse 20, which is the only verse that was mentioned here, where, where Paul says to bring forth uh, deeds in keeping with repentance. Yeah, there are, there are certain deeds that are, that are evidence of the reality of repentance. They're mentioned, or some of them are mentioned, in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 7. Let me begin reading in verse 9. Paul says, verse 9, 7, 9, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Gang, have you ever seen people get real sorry about their sin? Well, because they got caught. You see, there's a difference between repentance and worldly grief. But here's the description. Verse 11, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. All of it in response to my sin. You see, if God authors repentance, there is this zeal to deal, not with your sin, but with mine. Guys, repentance for the Christian is a way of life. Um, you know who said that? Martin Luther said that, but that's not the Bible. You need to, you need to, you need to measure it by the scriptures. But let me, let me just read you this. This is from Psalm 119, that real long one in there that nobody likes to read. It's 176 verses. Let me read you verse 176. David is speaking and he says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. That's David. Because, ladies and gentlemen, we don't stray just once. We stray a lot. And so repentance for us believers is a way of life. Martin Luther said that in the first theses of the 95 that he nailed on the church door at Wittenberg. That was number one. Repentance is a way of life. Christianity begins with repentance. And it continues in repentance. Now, two quick things, and I'll, I'll, I'll quit. Just kind of applications of of these two wonderful parables number one we are never more like god as when we are rejoicing over the fact that the lost have been found we are never more like him than when we are um celebrating the salvation of sinners you know guys one of the the criticisms that the non-christian world has for us christians is that, uh, okay, Jimmy Young, fine. If you want to be a Christian, that's just fine. But just leave the rest of us alone. You need to stop trying to convert us. Guys, we can't do that and not be like this this God. He, um, He loves, we love. He longs, we long. 
He rejoices, we rejoice. Never are we more like him than we are than when we are earnest in the pursuit of lost things. And then finally, guys, Jesus didn't come to congratulate us on our fine behavior. Had he done that, the scribes and the Pharisees would have loved him. But he came to save us. Um, did you notice that both of these parables were about sinners in verse 7 and in verse 10? These parables are about sinners. Jesus came to save them. Gang, the fact that Jesus ate with sinners was not a proof that he wasn't the Messiah. It was a proof that he was the Messiah. Let me explain. If a leper goes and have lunch with another leper, that's no big deal. But if a completely healthy person goes to a leper colony and mingles with and, and, and uh, converses with and has lunch with a, a bunch of lepers, why, that is moral grandeur. But if that same healthy person can somehow take on all of the leprosy of all the rest of us, and by so doing, making us clean, but in the process, having to sacrifice himself, well, that's utterly breathtaking. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel. That's what he did do. Gang, for Christians, nothing is so beautiful as to hear this man receives sinners and eats with them. Guys, did you hear that? Our Savior receives sinners and he eats with us. A sinner has a friend. He did it on earth. He did it as he does it in heaven. He receives sinners like us. And he eats with us. The sinner has a friend. And more importantly, he has a Savior. You know, guys, the thing that the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining about in verse 2 is grace. Nobody who, is, nobody who doesn't know their sin likes grace because they're so afraid that somebody is going to get it who they don't think should get it. Like, like people like that Jimmy Young, wicked, narrow-minded guy. You know, ladies and gentlemen, the only thing I deserve is condemnation. But I'm not going to get that. Because Jesus got it for me. The owner left heaven and came and found a stupid sheep. And he said, I receive sinners and I eat with them. Wow. 
Heavenly Father, I, I do pray that you will remind your people that the gospel describes a Savior who is willing to identify with people as wicked as we are and to bear their guilt and shame such that they can be restored to the rightful owner. We are yours, O oh God. We are owned hook, line, and sinker. We do not belong to ourselves, and we are ecstatic about that. Now, Father, if you've led people here who have not yet met our Savior, who are not yet redeemed, which you cause them to see the great beauty of what Christ has done for people like us. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.